You are goodness. You are mercy. And Father, you are holy, entirely set apart from us and worthy of our worship. And Father, you have spoken to us in your word. In these last days, you have spoken to us through your Son. And Father, the endeavor of opening your word and studying your word so that we might be doers of your word is entirely worthy of our attention early in the morning, early on a Sunday morning, any day. And so, Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you that you called us together here uh, for that purpose and pray that you'd give us clarity. Father, I pray that you'd help me to have clarity of mind and speech. Uh, And, Father, that you'd grant us all understanding as together we behold the glory of Christ uh, because, Father, it is true that every part of your word uh, speaks to our need for our Messiah. And, Lord, that is certainly true of the book of Ecclesiastes. So I pray that you'd give us wisdom as we seek to see and to understand what your word has to say to us and how it instructs us to change the way we think, the way we speak, the way we live, the things we do. I pray, Father, that your word would have its place in our heart as the only authority by which we live uh, in everything. We pray in your son's name. Amen. All right, be seated. Uh, So this is the start of a new six-week series, uh, kind of a survey, Bible survey, through the book of Ecclesiastes. And that might seem... uh, a little incongruous with whatever was last done in Bible survey. Does anyone remember what it was last done? Job. Okay, so it's not too incongruous. Is Ecclesiastes next after Job? Hmm. No. Anyway, the reason reason for that is uh, Rod found out that I did Ecclesiastes for the high school boys about a year ago and asked me to reproduce it here. So, uh, it'll be a little bit beefed up from what the high school boys heard, um, but that is uh, what that came from. And you might sort of ask if there's an opportunity to teach the high school boys something, why Ecclesiastes? Uh, and I'm glad you asked. Uh, and, and the reason being, um, I think this message of Ecclesiastes is particularly important for young people. Um, and it's actually, uh, Ecclesiastes became maybe my favorite book of the Bible, one of my favorite books of the Bible, uh, whenever I studied it around the time, and I may have been actually reading it when the Lord saved me. It was around the time that the Lord saved me. And from early in my Christian walk, I, I remember wishing, and I, I mean, it's hard not to wish now, that I had heard and embraced the truths that Solomon communicates uh, from, from a younger age. I was somewhat young. I guess I was 30 uh, when I did. Uh, But he writes in chapter 12, verse 1, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, when you say, I have no delight in them. So hear that exhortation and also realize that it's never too late to learn this truth. In fact, Solomon was clearly in his last years when he wrote Ecclesiastes. He died around the age of 80 uh, and wrote this towards the end. He's, He's cataloging, especially in... Uh, chapter 12, what it's like to be an old person and the futility, the vanity that accompanies old age. So as we go through Ecclesiastes, uh, we will see that if you set your eyes and hopes and dreams on the things of this world, uh, which Solomon has a lot of experience with, if you set your sights on the things of this world, Uh, on getting for yourself and satisfying yourself, you will be miserable in old age when the fleetingness and cursedness of this life and its pleasures become painfully obvious. And that happens uh, to all of us, and some of us it happens before old age. Um, And and Solomon will have plenty to say about that as we go along also. So, listen up as we go through Ecclesiastes, because God, through Solomon, and Solomon is a particularly um, skilled Uh, communicator of these truths, has some things to teach you, some things that you desperately need to know no matter your age. Uh, So just a note, um, I've studied and read Ecclesiastes a lot on my own, uh, like I said, since really I was a new believer, Uh, but I've also benefited from this little book, uh, Walter Kaiser's little commentary called Total Life on Ecclesiastes, and I point that out now because uh, he was the one who first pointed out to me uh, the three places where Solomon repeats his key theme, uh, which can be sort of paraphrased like this. The best thing in the world is to eat, to drink, 
and to enjoy your labor. This is the gift of God. So he says that three times in sort of different language in each places, but you can tell he's repeating that theme as his emphasis uh, in chapter 2, and you have these in your outline there. Oh yeah, by the way, oh no, that, that wasn't where it's a blank. Uh, so chapter 2, verses 24 and 26, Solomon writes, There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of of God. And he goes on in the next couple of verses to explain that, closing out chapter 2. Then in chapter 5, he says it this way, here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat and drink and enjoy oneself and all one's labors in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. And then again, very similarly in chapter 8, it's just sort of one verse where he encapsulates this, verse 15, so I commend pleasure for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry. And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. Uh, so Solomon's repetition in these three places does two things for us. First, it gives us the main point of the book. Uh, and if you're familiar with Ecclesiastes, you might um, think to, to question that, especially in light of chapter 12 where Solomon says that uh, the end of the matter when all has been heard is this, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Um, and in a sense, you could maybe say that's the purpose, although I think it's really foundational to the purpose. I think it's the repetition of that key phrase that this is what we're given, is to work hard and enjoy our labors, to eat and drink and enjoy God's good gifts. And the way we do that, Solomon is saying at the end of the book, is fearing God and keeping his commandments. That's what leads us into being able to enjoy life. So that being the main point of the book, uh, the blanks to fill in are here. The point of Ecclesiastes, enjoy life as God's good gift. The point of Ecclesiastes, enjoy life as God's good gift. And uh, maybe that, hopefully, it, it uh, piques your curiosity a bit if you are used to thinking of Ecclesiastes in terms of vanity and futility. Uh, that is actually the way Solomon would have us led into enjoying life as God's good gift, is to see the vanity and futility of life under the curse apart from fearing God and keeping his commandments. So that's the first thing that Solomon's repetition in those verses does for us. Secondly, that textual marker, those same words and the theme repeated at those intervals, helps us to recognize Solomon's intended structure for the text, which you have under Roman numerals 1 to 4 there, the four sections. So I'm giving those to you so you'll know how this is broken up. Uh, I'm not giving you section titles at this point. Uh, and as you see, we have four main sections of text and we have six weeks um, and that's a good thing because we weren't going to get all the way through chapter 2 in our survey this morning. That first section takes us through two chapters. So we'll get through, I think, most of the way through chapter 1. Uh, and then probably next week we'll start in on chapter 2 and close out at least that first section of text. Uh, and in fact, you'll notice that there is some text even before we get to Roman numeral 1. Uh, verse 1 comes before that outline starts. So go ahead and open your Bibles, if you haven't already, <clears throat> to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we'll take a look at verse 1. Verse 1 reads like this, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So here is where we meet Solomon, the author, who is the son of King David, who became king after him. Uh, Solomon, you'll notice right off, refers to himself as the preacher. Uh, in Hebrew, that word is koheleth. Uh, in fact, that's the name of the book in the Hebrew Bible, and it's actually the name of the book in our English Bible, because Ecclesiastes is the translation of that word. And you might notice the commonality between that word, Ecclesiastes, and ecclesiology. I don't know if that's ever uh, made you wonder. And that's, there's good reason for that. The, the, the Hebrew equivalent to uh, ecclesia, where we get ecclesiology, the study of the church, is kahal, and that's basically the word for assembly or to call an assembly 
in the Old Testament. So Solomon, it, really, we don't know exactly what uh, Koheleth means, but it has something to do with being the one who is listened to or heard in the assembly. And with Solomon, the reason for that, of course, would be his royal status. The fact that he's king means that he's heard in the assembly. So preacher, I think, is what the ESV and the NASB both say, and that's a good translation, but just realize it's because of the idea of an assembly, different from uh, our church service in some ways, but Solomon definitely has a word to get out to us as the one who communicates in the assembly, and that's really the stress of verse 1. The first words in English is the same as the first word in Hebrew, that the words are what's being emphasized uh, and we see this again in chapter 12, uh, verses 9 and 10. Solomon emphasizes what he's given us as being important words. Uh, he writes in chapter 12, In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. First uh, Kings 4 tells us that Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Uh, so he was a man who, who did this uh, enjoyed it and pursued words of wisdom. Uh, he continues, the preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. And that probably applies to all of those, the 3,000 Proverbs and the 1,005 songs, but it applies especially here, verses 11 and 12 in chapter 12, Solomon claims divine inspiration for himself as the author of Ecclesiastes, uh, elevating this book to the status of scripture. He writes this, the words of wise men are like goads and masters of these collections. So he's talking about all the books that are inspired, all the books that are given through the inspiration of God. All, or the masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. Uh, and starting with, I would say, Job and, of course, the Pentateuch, everything written by Moses and everything that have been written up until this day, Solomon knows the scriptures. Solomon, as a king, is required to... Uh, copy by hand the scriptures. So he knows what he's referring to, and he's referring to them as being given by one shepherd. Unmistakably here, that's a reference to the divine inspiration of scripture, that there is an ultimate author, a divine author behind scripture, and he's saying that's where we get Ecclesiastes also. So that's your blank there. The words of the preacher are inspired words. They are words that ultimately come from God, and of course, that's key. That's why they're worth uh, talking about, studying, and obeying. These words from Ecclesiastes, 3,000 years later, uh, we come back to this and are profited by it. Uh, so they're inspired words, but they're also the words, and this is how inspiration works. It's God and man together. They're also the words of David's son, Solomon, who was king in Jerusalem, and we will see that he is uniquely qualified to teach us the lessons that we find in Ecclesiastes. Um, so, uh, here we're getting stuck a little bit in verse 1, but there's good reason for that. Uh, we will do well to learn a little bit about Solomon, to whom we've just been introduced in the text of Ecclesiastes. We'll, be good, we'll do good to learn a little bit about him up front from a few other texts. So, I'm going to have you turn a few times in your Bibles right now. And these are all referenced in the notes if you don't catch them or turn there. Uh, immediately, but first, Second Chronicles chapter one, if you would turn there with me. Uh, so this is right at the beginning of Solomon's reign, and we will see here uh, where Solomon's wisdom comes from. And you guys, I'm sure, are somewhat familiar with this. It's often repeated in children's Sunday school. I think that um, uh, Solomon was wise for these particular reasons that we'll see in this text here. Uh, starting with verse 1. Now Solomon, the son of David, established himself securely over his kingdom. So this is the beginning of his reign. And the Lord his God was with him and exalted him greatly. Uh, and just a note from a parallel text, 1 Kings 3, uh, and this will become important later. Uh, in this same context, the writer there in 1 Kings says, Now Solomon loved the Lord. So we see the beginning of wisdom the fear of God, the love of God, Solomon has here. Uh, skipping ahead to verse 6, at the beginning of his, his reign here, Solomon went up before the Lord to the bronze altar, which was at the tent of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. So his heart, you can see by his uh, willingness to sacrifice greatly, is involved in worship 
in wanting to sacrifice to God. And that is immediately met with God's response. Verse 7, in that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, ask what I shall give you. Solomon responds, and again, skipping ahead, verse 10, give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can rule this great people of yours? Uh, So Solomon, the son of a king, would have had great training, would have already been pretty well versed in the word. But you see here evident humility. It says in 1 Kings 3 again, I am but a little child. These are Solomon's word in the same context. I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. He's, He's admitting his finiteness, his limitations. He isn't capable in himself of leading God's people. So he's asking for wisdom. And God is clearly pleased with that. Verse 11, God said to Solomon, because you had this in mind and did not ask for riches, wealth, or honor, or the life of those who hate you, nor have you even asked for long life, but you have asked for yourself wisdom and knowledge that you may rule my people over whom I have made you king. Therefore, wisdom and knowledge have been granted to you, and I will give you riches and wealth and honor such as none of the kings who were before you has possessed, nor those who will come after you. So Solomon asked humbly for wisdom, and God gave it in abundance. By God's gracious gift, Solomon was exceedingly wise. And there's your blank. Solomon was exceedingly wise. So from that perspective, early on in his work as a king, Solomon is qualified in that respect. He's exceedingly wise. And this is evident here in that text we've just looked at. And of course, as Jesus notes in the gospel accounts, even Sheba, the queen of the south, came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And we won't go there, but you read about her in 2 Chronicles 9, that she was left breathless, without breath, because being with Solomon in person was even more astounding than the famous accounts she had heard of his wisdom, the wisdom of his administration as king. Uh, and if you read that, that account in Second uh, Chronicles 9 and really all about Solomon's rule and reign, you might think that his wisdom that he's getting here is just a matter of worldly wisdom. Uh, and you might think that as you look at his pursuits in Ecclesiastes, about which he repeatedly says they're vain. Uh, but if you've ever read his prayer at the dedication of the temple uh, in Second Chronicles 6, and we'll take a minute to look at that here. Uh, Because it really is striking how it's not just a matter of worldly wisdom, but it's also a matter of righteousness involved in in Solomon's wisdom. So turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 6, just a few from where you are there in chapter 1. Solomon prays, Now therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep with your servant David my father that which you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your sons take heed to their way to walk in my law as you have walked before me. And he continues to call on the truth of God's word and God's promises to urge God to be gracious towards Israel. Uh, Skipping ahead to verse 21, listen to the supplications, the pleas for mercy. So again, there's a heart of humility here. Of your servant calling himself, and that's in the Hebrew, it's Ebed, slave. Your slave and of your people Israel, when they pray toward this place, hear from your dwelling place from heaven, hear and forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, punishing the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. Uh, He continues, I think I'll skip ahead here to verse 40. Uh, Now, O my God, I pray, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. Now, therefore, arise, O Lord God, to your resting place and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let your godly ones rejoice in what is good. O Lord, do not turn, the, turn away the face of your anointed. Remember your loving kindness to your servant David. So you just see, and if you read the whole thing, you'd see this even more, uh, this heart of humble supplication of appeals to God's righteousness, God's faithfulness in his promises, his covenant promises. And again, God responds with just overwhelming glory and affirmation of what Solomon has prayed in verse 1 of chapter 7. Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. So Solomon's pleasing and acceptable prayer here at the beginning, towards the beginning of his ministry, 
as king meets with this response of God coming to dwell with his people. So your blank there is Solomon's wisdom was not just a worldly wisdom, it was a wisdom that was full of righteousness. Solomon's wisdom was full of righteousness. And remember uh, the note that I brought in from 1 Kings 3 that Solomon loved the Lord. So sometimes seeing what he goes on to do, that question can be asked, was Solomon a believer? Because he just gave himself to so much sin and idolatry in his rule as king. And I think if that were all you were looking at and that was all the biblical evidence, then maybe you could question Solomon's salvation. But this is a decisive word inscripturated that Solomon loved the Lord and we see evidences of his righteousness. And in Ecclesiastes, we'll see we see evidence of his repentance. Uh, But I think it's important to us as we think that over, as we think over the immense wisdom Solomon received at the beginning of his reign and even the heart that he had that was inclined to God, to love God and to do things, to pray in righteousness, humble supplication before the Lord, and then he gives himself to sin, just be warned that that is a snare for us also. Um, I think Solomon uh, would say he was puffed up with pride, uh, with his position, with the status he had, maybe with trusting in his own wisdom. Whatever it was, there was something in Solomon's heart that inclined him away from the testimonies of God. Um, I think this warning is kind of like what Paul has in mind in 1 Corinthians 3. As a matter of fact, I'm going to open there, and you guys can move over there with me if you want. 1 Corinthians 3, starting with verse 10. Paul writes, According to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. And here's the warning. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid. And this, I think, is what Solomon's saying at the end in chapter 12, that the whole duty of man is to fear God. That's, that's really, in its essence, gospel statement. Fear God and keep his commandments. Uh, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any, ma- if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. And here's the sort of futility. If you give your life to even good things that aren't done in the fear of the Lord, this is what's to look forward to. Is If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And I can only imagine as Solomon penned Ecclesiastes, looking back on a life, having had this wisdom at the beginning and spurned it for so much of that life, and seeing at the end of his life, I need to communicate this to other generations so that they will know the futility of a life pursued apart from the fear of God. A life of futility, uh, just giving yourself to the things of the world for their own sake. Uh, That was what he did for much of his ministry, and he's warning us. Uh, So we need to take that warning to heart, that warning that life for its own sake, the good things even that come from God for their own sakes, are futility and vanity apart from the fear of the Lord. So Solomon's wisdom was full of righteousness. Uh, That theme we sort of see emphasized throughout the rest of Scripture, particularly in one way, that Solomon's kingdom is held up as sort of the paradigm of the ideal kingdom of God. Uh, We read in Isaiah 60, and I won't turn there for the sake of time, but the description of the messianic kingdom. And if you read the accounts particularly of Sheba and other leaders from around the world coming to see Solomon's kingdom, that same language is lifted by Isaiah and used there in Isaiah 60 to describe the kingdom of Christ, the millennial kingdom. Uh, And then some of those same, same themes are picked up on again in Revelation. So that could be profitable reading for you guys this week as you think about uh, Solomon, who's giving us this word and the nature of his kingdom and how uh, the good aspects of it that God gave uh, set up sort of a model for Christ's kingdom. Those good things uh, inform us of what we have to look forward to. Uh, So it is true that, that, that Solomon's kingdom is sort of the paradigm for the future messianic kingdom, but sadly, ideal king and kingdom is not all we think about with Solomon. 
Uh, Open, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Flip back there. Um, And just to sort of explain why we're going there, uh, we'll see as we go through Ecclesiastes that Solomon is emphasizing, and we kind of already saw this, emphasizing the goodness of the work that we're given to do by God, that it's his good gift to us. And Solomon did a lot of that work, and he did a lot of it very well. And that's why his kingdom is held up as sort of a paradigm of the messianic kingdom. Uh, But we know that that good work, Solomon did not pursue, generally speaking, in faithfulness, uh, which is why he's assigning the tag of vanity to it. And, And really, the decisive way we know that he did not pursue that work, that good work that's a gift from God, generally in faithfulness, is that the uh, historical books writers are very intentional to show us that Solomon broke the three specific instructions that were given to kings of Israel. Uh, So that is what we will see in Deuteronomy chapter 17. If I can find my place. (laughs) Well, maybe I didn't put it in here. Okay, Deuteronomy 17. Starting with... Is that in the outline there? 14, starting with 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, and this is where we get the first stipulation for the king's uh, approach to things, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or or else his heart will turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. So three specific, very specific requirements there. And we can remember those easily. This has never left me since the teacher first pointed it out to me. As the three Gs, gold, gallop, and gals. (laughs) So not to multiply gold or horses, gallop, or foreign women, gals. And the question has to arise, why gold, horses, and foreign women? Well, gold, and I think we see this repeatedly in the scriptures, gold is easy to trust instead of God. It's easy to trust our financial resources instead of God. Solomon in chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes says about foolish kings that they say money answers everything. And when you have a lot of money, Solomon knew this from experience, that can be your attitude. Easy to trust in gold instead of God. Horses represent military might, horses and chariots. Proverbs 21, also a work of Solomon, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. Of course, he's capturing the wisdom there that it doesn't matter how many horses you have, how well prepared they are for battle, the battle belongs to the Lord. And then foreign women, uh, this one might not be immediately obvious. I mean, in context there in Deuteronomy 17, it's warning of the fact that they might turn your heart to worship other other gods, but even the fact of pursuing a foreign marriage Uh, could be a desire to form a military alliance. And that was the case with Solomon, particularly when it came to Egypt. He married Pharaoh's daughter for this purpose. As a king like Solomon married the daughters of foreign kings, these could be strong human alliances. So trusting in kings, trusting in princes, your ability to form human alliances through marriage instead of trusting in God. So those stipulations well laid prior, long prior to Solomon's kingship in Deuteronomy 17. And then the historical writers, like I said, are very careful to point out that Solomon violated these commands very, very explicitly. Second uh, Chronicles 9, which I've alluded, alluded to once already, after the account of the Queen of Sheba coming to see, and she does see Solomon's treasure, all of his gold, but this is just a note in verse 13 of Second Chronicles 9. Now the weight of gold which came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Uh, and we could do illustrations of how much space that would fill up, but I think it's probably more striking to realize that's $1 billion equivalent. So $1 billion of our dollars came into Solomon's kingdom 
in gold every year. So he was clearly multiplying gold. So much so, verse 20 of Second Chronicles 9 uh, all of, and it goes through what all is gold in his kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. Silver was not considered valuable. So it says in Deuteronomy 17 not to multiply silver and gold. Silver wasn't even considered valuable in the days of Solomon because of the quantity of gold that was coming into the kingdom. Uh, and probably the most explicit uh, in terms of direct violation of Deuteronomy 17 in 2 Chronicles 1, since you're in that area, you might turn back there. 2 Chronicles 1, uh, starting with verse 14, Solomon amassed chariots and horsemen. So really just outdid himself in terms of violating that command. Uh, verse 16, Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt. So again, the explicit instruction was not to get horses from Egypt. And from Q, which is a province of Egypt, the king's traders, so he sent his traders. Again, that was prohibited sent his traders to Egypt to procure horses from Q for a price. Uh, verse 17, they imported chariots from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver apiece and horses for 150 apiece. So just very detailed explanation of how Solomon violated that command for Israel's kings. Uh, and then finally, so that's gold and gallop, finally gals. First Kings 11. And if you read First Kings, the first 10 chapters are just glorious and how they describe Solomon's faithfulness in setting up his kingdom, in humbling himself before God, in building the temple. I mean, it almost seems like the messianic kingdom has come. And I think those first 10 chapters are why Isaiah in chapter 60 picks up on that and says this, in some sense, is what it will be like when Christ reigns. But starting with verse 1 of chapter 11, we read this. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. And the daughter of Pharaoh he had married uh, particularly to form that military alliance. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. And, and those specific examples would be displeasing to the Lord for various reasons in Israel's history that we won't go into. So really, the writer of 1 Kings is trying to tell us Solomon has explicitly violated Deuteronomy 17 in this third way. Uh, and the consequence that Deuteronomy 17 holds out, uh, again, is emphasized here. Verse 3, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away, just as Deuteronomy 17 said they would. For when Solomon was old, and so, I mean, there you even see all the way up to, and perhaps even in some ways, including his writing of Ecclesiastes, that consequence was there. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. So, violated all of those. Again, the, the uh, Old Testament history writers are very explicitly pointing out to us that Solomon in his kingdom building, although he received these good gifts from God, did not generally undertake it in faithfulness. And of course, we know that uh, God promises at the end of Solomon's reign that it won't happen in his day because of David, but Solomon's son will lose 10 out of the 12 tribes of Israel. The kingdom will be divided under Rehoboam. So generally, not a pleasing to the Lord result from Solomon's reign. <clears throat> so for our purposes... What we want to see from all of this is that Solomon is a king who has received the height of riches, the height of authority, the height of earthly pleasure, and the height of earthly power. Um, I think we see all of those, and it's kind of a mix of good gifts from God and then bad things that Solomon adds to it. Um, I think it's good to think about this in kind of a, a Genesis 50 verse 20. Uh, way, and, and you guys may or may not be familiar with that verse. It's a verse that's repeated uh, frequently throughout the rest of the scripture, which is when uh, Joseph is talking to his brothers, and they are wanting forgiveness for selling him into slavery. And Joseph says, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Um, as Solomon received the good gifts of uh, God's kingdom promise, God's seed promise, the Messiah coming through David and through his descendants, and received all of these riches and wisdom and everything that went into building the temple 
the um, submissiveness and the uh, willingness to follow his leadership among Israel, uh, as he received all of these good things, he added his own sin to it in, in ways, as we've seen, that are just in direct contradiction to what God would require of kings. But he intended it for evil, God intended it for good. And Solomon, throughout Ecclesiastes, is drawing on those experiences, uh, those both positive benefits of things he received in faithfulness from the Lord, and his experience of having added his own futility and vanity to them, pursuing those things, pursuing more than what God was willing to give him for their own sake. So, uh, you should note this, and I would ask it in a question. Is there anything that you could aspire to from an earthly perspective that Solomon hasn't already outdone? And this is what was really decisive for me, I think about the age of 30 when I really read this as a believer, was thinking about what my life had been like up to that point, especially the kinds of things that I pursued in my 20s. And some of you probably know I lived in California and, and ran in circles with kind of wealthy and famous people. And that was what I was mostly giving my heart to. And uh, reading Ecclesiastes, especially the descriptions of the houses Solomon built and his fame and everything he attained, this really struck a chord with me that if I give myself, if I were to continue to give myself to all those pursuits that I gave myself to in my 20s, would I ever be able to do as well at it as Solomon? And the answer was clearly no. I was never going to attain to that. I hadn't been nearly as successful as Solomon in attaining to those things for myself. And here Solomon is telling me that although he got all those things, although he got a billion dollars in gold every year, it was vanity. It was futility. And so that, I think, is a key lesson for us to let Solomon teach to us. And the blank there is Solomon is qualified. Look at how I wrote worded that. <clears throat> Solomon is qualified to tell you how you should relate to everything you might have on your agenda to get for yourself from this world. He has tried it all. He has tried it all, and he's done a better job of it than any of us is probably going to be able to do. So let the qualified one tell you how you should relate to those pursuits of the world. So that brings us to uh, verse 2 of Ecclesiastes 1. And uh, this is where we'll pick up, especially uh, the first chapter of Ecclesiastes, we'll pick up that theme that might be most famous in uh, Ecclesiastes, that the book starts out with it, that everything is vain. That's how he starts out verse 2. Vanities, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That word vanity uh, might immediately strike a chord for what it means, and, and really I think my preferred word is futility. Futility of futilities, all is futility. Uh, and he goes on, I think, to give several illustrations of futility, because it's funny, I was getting to this point, I was thinking, how could I illustrate futility? Well, Solomon does that here in context. Uh, but actually, just to start out with an illustration, to, to give the sense, I think, of the word, uh, imagine being in a boat that's sprung a leak, and you have a Dixie cup to try to bail the water out of this boat that's sprung a leak. Well, that, that water is going to fill that boat way faster than you can get that water out of there with a Dixie cup. That is futility. doesn't matter how much I give myself to this, it's futile. The effort is going to prove worthless. So like I said, starting with uh, verse 3, uh, actually verse 3 is kind of a summary statement. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? Verse 4, generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. So actually, he's starting out there not with an illustration of vanity, although it does uh, encapsulate the whole idea as kind of a summary statement of vanity. What he's pointing to there is curse. And what Solomon is teaching us, starting in chapter 1 here, is how to live in God's world under God's curse. Uh, the way that we see that here in the text is then a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. It was not always meant to be that way. When God made man in the garden, man was immortal. 
other than if he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, God said, in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And the proof of that is a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. So there's sort of the uh, encapsulating statement for why everything is vain. Then starting with verse 5, we see illustrations of vanity. He writes, also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. So it doesn't matter how many times the sun rises, it has to do it again and again and again. There's no end to that cycle, and the light is never there until the sun rises again. It doesn't stay. There's, there's vanity there. Blowing toward the south, verse 6, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. So same thing with the wind. It just circles the globe, keeps going. It's vanity. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. So this is kind of the reverse of the uh, boat that sprung a leak. The rivers can never fill the seas. It's just this endless cycle. Nothing ever comes to full fruition. Verse 8, all things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. So on our own, we can't explain. And I think this is really kind of the point of the book of Job, uh, that all of man's wisdom cannot explain to us our situation, so we need God and his word to explain it to us, and that really comes, starting with the book of Genesis, answers all of Job's questions in Revelation, I mean in, in Job, with further revelation. And here, I think, is probably the scripture's clearest answer to our questions of how to live in light of the curse. How to live in light of the curse. But what prompted me there is that man is not able to tell it. Job's counselors are not able. For all of their worldly wisdom, they're not able to answer him. And it, it, it results in a lack of satisfaction. Just like the water can never be filled in the sea from the rivers, we can never be satisfied with what we can get from general revelation. And just to, just to note, um, Psalm 19, you might have sort of recognized a correspondence between what we just looked at and Psalm 19. What's the difference What's the difference between Psalm 19 and the observations of the psalmist from general revelation and what Solomon is talking about here in terms of futility? I think the difference is in Psalm 19, David is seeing that God is glorified by these things. God is glorified by what he's put in place in terms of the sun, in terms of the heavens, in terms of everything that we observe in creation. Solomon is looking at these, and of course Solomon knows Psalm 19. He's David's son, so he's not denying that. He's looking at these things apart from that disposition that he comes to in chapter 12 of fearing God and keeping his commandments. If you don't have eternity in perspective, if you don't have the fear of God in your heart, then it's all futility. So he continues, and this particularly talking about labor, that which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. doesn't matter how much work you give for yourself. Uh, it's, it's never going to amount to something that hasn't already been done. Is there anything of which one might say, see, this is new? Already it has existed for ages which were before us. And realize Solomon's saying this 3,000 years ago, uh, with 3,000 years pretty much already in the bag for the earth. So it continues to be true today. He continues verse 11. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. So this reality of curse, this reality of death, makes it so that what we do in this life won't be remembered. Um, I spent this last weekend, Dan and I, you know, in California, and that pastor mentioned several times while we were there, 20 years after I'm dead, maybe my kids will remember me, and that's about it. A hundred years later, nothing's going to remain. All that's going to matter is that you feared God and kept his commandments, and you did your work uh, enjoying him and enjoying his good gifts for his glory. That's the difference. It's either futility or it's that. 
He continues, verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. So he's considered all this. He's considered the futility of things. And I think by this time, like I said, he's approaching 80 years of age. He's given himself to a lifetime of work. And these are his observations, even about nature, even about God's glorious creation, apart from the right pursuit and the right enjoyment for the right reason of those things, it's all vanity. So he's given himself to considering this and for our benefit. His conclusion is this. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. So life under the curse, just for life's sake, is a grievous thing. It's not something that's worthy of our hopes. It's not something that's worthy of our delight. It's not something that's worthy of our pursuit. Life apart from him. He continues, I have seen the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. And uh, he's already mentioned the wind once in terms of its futility, that it just keeps circling the globe kind of to, to no purpose, to no avail. And this is a particularly stri striking image. If you think about if you're running in the same direction as the wind, and you start out and you feel the wind at your back, and your intention is to catch the wind. Well, if you catch up and you're going as fast as the wind is going, what's your perception then of the wind? It's not there, right? So if you're striving after the wind and you catch it, it's not there. There's nothing there. And I think Solomon's applying that truth to pursuing anything in creation for its own sake. You catch up to it, and you're going to realize it's that same experience. There's nothing there. It's vanity. He continues, verse 15, What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. The curse put everything under this condition. Um, it's the idea of entropy, that what exists, what's alive, is constantly decaying. <laughs> Having a conversation with someone this week about something being gross, and this person was um, kind of overcome, and not always, but, but occasionally overcome with the idea of things being gross. And I'm not sure this was the most sensitive way to respond, but I said, we are gross. You just got to get used to the fact that we live under curse, and these bodies are always decaying and becoming unpleasant, and it takes a lot of work, and we tend to fool ourselves. You've probably heard this, that we, we have separated ourselves from death kind of progressively, that originally the living room that we have today was called the parlor because in each person's house when someone died, the dead body would stay there. They'd bring in flowers to kind of mask the smell, but that was the purpose of that room. Well, it was only like maybe a little over 100 years ago, that the idea came about to move the parlor down the street and to make that room the living room. So we've separated ourselves from that unpleasantness, and we've given ourselves this thought that somehow we're not crooked, that there's some way we're going to find that this life in its own ways is not lacking. And that's just not true. The reality of curse, we cannot turn back. Only God can turn back the reality of curse. Verse 16, I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. So like I said, Solomon is uniquely qualified to give us his perspective on all these things, to lead us where we need to go in terms of how we think about living in a world under curse that's full of this futility. So in that endeavor, he says, verse 17, I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and, and, you know, as we go on to read how he did that, I think we'll look and say, I don't want to repeat what Solomon did, and we shouldn't. But again, he intended it for evil. God intended it for good. We can learn from it. He learned this. I realized that this also is striving after wind. So as he tried these things and attained to them and applied his wisdom to them, he got them and realized they were worthless. They were, they were dung, like Paul says in Philippians 3. For the reason, verse 18, because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Uh, and I think it's maybe particularly striking that he ends chapter 1 on that note, because we can have this tendency to think, 
Well, uh, yeah, things rot and rust and decay, but ideas and, and higher thinking, that's where it's at. And Solomon's telling us, no, that, that itself is not only vanity, but results in much grief and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. This is akin to his warning that he gives later that of the writing of many books in chapter 12, there is no end. In much study, there is weariness that what we should be immersed in, first and foremost, is the word of God. That's what it all comes down to. Uh, So, uh, sort of wrapping it up for today, uh, I want us to think a little bit about what Solomon is leading us towards as he gets us to consider the futility, the vanity of life for life's sake under the curse. Uh, And I want to do so by looking at a few New Testament texts. I think I have, yeah, here we go. Uh, John 12, verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I'm going to keep going in these texts, and then I'll sort of explain at the end. Luke uh, 14, 26, Jesus' words again, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So he has to hate his own life to be worthy to be Jesus' Jesus's disciple. And then Matthew 16, 25, Jesus' words again, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And what all three of those texts have in common is it's Jesus telling us the heart we have to have towards this life if we're going to have the right relationship with God and attain to eternal life. So what Solomon is doing here, and this is, we've just wrapped up chapter one of Ecclesiastes, he is teaching us the way to enjoy life as God's good gift, and the entry point is to see this life for its own sake as vanity, so that we will, in some sense, like Jesus says, hate it, so that we will hate it and desire to fear God and keep his commandments, which is the whole duty of man. Okay, there's much more to be said, but we're out of time. So let's pray, and then we'll have a few announcements. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the truth, for the sufficiency of your word. And we pray, Father, that you would have this word take effect in our hearts. Uh, Father, I pray... Uh, For anyone among us who is uh, maybe hearing these things for the first time, uh, Father, who has not come to the point where they um, hate this life and want to receive your righteousness and your gift of life as a gift, uh, Father, I pray that if that's the case, that uh, they and that we all would continue to look to Christ, who is our sufficient righteousness, the gift from you of eternal life, and receive that gift, receive the fear of God, receive your commandments as the good gift that they are, and go from here and walk in them. We pray that it would all be to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.